Hey everybody, this is Matt and welcome to School Sucks Live. Tonight, I'm going to start out in the studio alone, but on the phone with me is Mr. Stefan Molyneux. Steph, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Brett. How are you doing? Happy New Year, brother. Um, happy New Year. Glad to have you back. Uh, it's been, geez, well, you were on with us at Porkfest briefly, but before that, it was sometime in 2010 uh, that we got together to do a show. So uh, a lot has happened. You've had a lot more uh, time to be a dad during those two years. Your daughter's grown up. She's four? Three? Yeah, she just turned four. Oh, all right. So um, education has begun. Oh, boy. Uh, education began uh, at the very beginning. Um, uh, I remember when she was fairly close to newborn, a couple of months old, uh, I used to lie her on her back and grab her feet, sort of put them up to her bum, and then she could push herself forward uh, along the ground. And I think that's one of the reasons why she walked so early is she really enjoyed having that kind of control, being able to push herself. I remember going up and down the hallway <laughs> a whole bunch of times. And so, um, yeah, the education has begun. And I think, as most parents will attest, it's a completely... Uh, mutual education. I'm certainly receiving as much, if not more, uh, out of it as I'm I'm putting in. So uh, it's a, it's a real privilege and a pleasure. Oh, I bet. And um, have you? Uh, I've seen some discussions uh, between you and Dana Martin. Is she uh, sold you on the idea of unschooling? Because I remember you. She being look, she's yeah. She certainly sold me on the idea of uh, of unschooling in that. It's kind of in the mix of things to consider, which I wouldn't really say that it was before. Uh, so, I mean, homeschooling was kind of radical enough for me, but unschooling is really pushing the envelope. And her idea of sort of stuff happens and you just kind of let kids learn and make their own mistakes. Uh, it's so counter to not just my upbringing, but what I understood as upbringing uh, growing up. So uh, I'm still trying to square that circle in my head, but uh, she's definitely making great progress at dissolving the toilet-trained-at-gunpoint fascist chains that <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately uh, was was my heritage. So um, uh, I guess she's appealing more to the Irish side of me than the German side. And uh, you spent some time in boarding school, correct? I did. I did. I spent a couple of years uh, from six onwards uh, uh, in boarding school, uh, also known as a, a breeding ground for the Orwellian-style um, <laughs> colonial dictators that they needed to run a fairly brutal empire. You know, separation from the young, um, fear of authority, uh, exposing you to lots of very harsh peer pressure and uh, canings and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's good at stripping out any remnants of empathy that you don't want bleeding in to the consciences of the upper class. So, um, yeah, very effective, and I'm very glad it wasn't longer than it was. I wanted to ask, uh, you know, something that I run into a, a lot with the people that I interact with here in New Hampshire, uh, something that people say is, well, you know, I always understood this stuff. I always understood that the school system was corrupt. The school system was, uh, the, you know, this attempt to get me to be obedient, to, to conform and to control my behavior. And, you know, I always knew the state was bullshit. And I'm really surprised to hear these things because I was deeply confused about a lot of these issues for a long time. And I remember internalizing a lot of that school experience and, and childhood experience. Probably, you know, I think for some people, this can continue right into adolescence as, boy, I, I hope I can figure out what's wrong with me, you know, because I'm not uh, fitting into this uh, this mold. 
So yeah, I mean, I I I was certainly a a fine, good little status Christian uh, when I was younger. I mean, I was brought up in the church. I was in the the school choir, and we went to church several times a week. And um, whenever I'd go and stay with relatives, they would always we'd go to church and and so on. And um, I I didn't have any sense at all that the world should be different than the way it was. I mean, I, there was lots about it I didn't like. But you know what? I didn't like going bald or being subject to gravity, but I just don't think these things are kind of optional. Uh, so um, there's, there was a lot I didn't like about the world, but I really didn't have any sense whatsoever, Brad, that, that it could be fundamentally different than the way it was. I mean, that, that took uh, Ayn Rand and uh, a bunch of other thinkers, but mostly Ayn Rand, to sort of explore that possibility within me. So I, I rejected, but I kind of rejected it like I sort of sent my soul on a Samizdat mission, sort of sent it underground and said, well, there's lots about this I don't really like, but I, get it, but, but I better keep it for, to myself because it's kind of not liking that it rains. You know, this is just the inevitabilities of living on the planet Earth. And so uh, the fact that I didn't like yeah. it didn't really give me any sense that it could or should be different. Uh, so I certainly can't claim to have had any innate understanding. Uh, I mean, I remember as a kid just going like when we, we moved to Canada – in 1977 and you could buy a candy bar for a dime and i remember the price going up like crazy and and it sort of stabilized around sort of 80 90 cents a dollar uh, within a decade or so decade and a bit i do remember thinking well that's kind of freaky like wh wh why are the prices going up and so i sort of imagined okay well i guess maybe the wages are going up. i couldn't, couldn't and it's because of course knew no exposure to monetary policy fiat currency the central banking or anything like that so i do remember being kind of confused by some stuff. And I, I also remember as a little kid, I was asking my mom and I said, I can't remember how old I was. Maybe, I think this was while I was in boarding school. I was home for some Christmas and I was six or seven years old. And I remember saying, uh, mom, how long did the First World War last? And she said, four years. And I said, who started it? And she said, Germany. And I said, well, how, how long did the Second World War last? And she said, four or five years. And I said, well, who started it? And she said, Germany. I remember thinking, okay, that that can't just be a coincidence. <laughs> there has to be there was some rational explanation for these repetitive patterns. I remember thinking about that stuff, but I ha had no clue whatsoever about any of the sort of alternate stuff. I mean, this is pre-internet. This is back in the golden days of two and a half television channels in England, a grainy black and white TV seemingly devoted to endless reruns of um, uh, Bond movies and sweaty-faced contestants in a, uh, a puzzle game. So I, I just... I, I think a lot of people did maybe feel that there was some alternate that could be achieved. I just, I knew it wasn't that much fun to be in the world the way that it was, but I no more imagine changing it than I would changing the laws of physics. Yeah, the, the, the clearest thought that I remember from growing up was, gosh, it's too bad that this is the way that it has to be. And, that, and I'm not talking about the larger world around me, which I was pretty much uh, oblivious to that at that point. Uh, but, then, you know, growing up and learning a little bit about history, before I was introduced to any of these uh, ideas that we discuss so regularly today, but, you know, kind of saying, is the world run by the dumbest, most myopic people out there, or is there just some other agenda that they're, they're not sharing with us? So um, I think that's similar to your World War I versus World War II and really, you know, being the same war with a 20-year break in there uh, idea. Um, but just feeling like, gosh, it, it must be something that I just can't get my head around. And, uh, if I can't understand why this makes sense when everybody else is walking around, at least acting like 
everything that's going on from the school to the political to the cultural makes sense. Mm. So I, you're aware of it. I just remember saying, gosh, it's too bad it has to be this way. Yeah, when I was growing up, there were two groups of people who were responsible for all the ills in the world. And, and, and those two groups of people are why authority had to be so harsh. Now, the first group of people were foreigners. Uh, and obviously, the Germans were pretty high up on that list. Um, and the, um, the most enthusiastic of the Nazi supporters, the French, and the Italians, who apparently couldn't fight their way out of a uh, calzone bag, so there was the foreigners who caused lots of problems. You know, we were just sitting here innocently enjoying our um, tasty white man's burden, raise up the brown-skinned people to the elevated ranks of Christianity empire. And then out of nowhere, you know, the Kaiser, uh, you know, ate a bad turkey sandwich and decided to invade. And and then um, people pulled the wrong levers in the voting booth. Hitler got in and he was such a powerful demagogue that he was able to rouse people up to, you know, the suicidal civil war slaughter of the European continent. And so the foreigners were one source of the problem. This is why, you know, we had to be harsh and we had to be tough and we had to have an army and a navy and an air force and we had to be disciplined and we had to do push-ups and we had to uh, be excel in sports and we had to learn engineering uh, and all of that because there were these dastardly foreigners who just wanted to end our way of life. You may remember this from the recent greatest hits of the war on terror. Now, the other group that was hugely problematic when I was growing up and really was the fundamental reason for the harshness of authority were children. Oh my. Children, you see, did not fit in very well to the hierarchy that was there. So, of course, there was original sin, echoes of that. I mean, I wasn't raised Catholic, but there were certainly echoes of that, that the children were, were selfish. They liked candy more than Jesus. And uh, this, of course, had to be corrected to however harshly. Children didn't listen. They weren't obedient. They didn't form lines when ordered to. Uh, they didn't uh, want to spend all their time on homework. Sometimes they didn't run hard enough up the hill for the 30th time during physical education classes. Uh, and children uh, were bu just basically uh, bad. You know, they were like... Um, I don't know how to put it exactly, but they were like a sack of wheat that kept uh, breaking at the seams and had to be stitched up regularly. And the, the selfishness and the laziness and the untrustworthiness and the deceptive nature of children who will try and fool you at any time into thinking that they've done something that they haven't and, and all that kind of stuff, the sort of lying, perfidious, underhanded, lazy nature of children was largely responsible for the harshness of, uh, of the discipline that was around and above me when I was a kid, right? So, I mean, I got caned for going over a fence to go and get a, a, a soccer ball or a football that had been kicked over. And, you know, the, the reason that I was caned was because I was I knew perfectly well what the rules were. I just didn't listen. I thought I could just take it all on myself and not listen to anyone. And so it was entirely the fault of foreigners and children that uh, discipline had to be so harsh and the world was the way it was. And if only foreigners would shape up and children would stop being selfish, I'm sure everyone could you know, imagine living in a kind of nirvana. But I, I think that was the general impression that I got as a kid, that I was um, uh, a, a badly defective adult that needed to be constantly patched up with uh, violence in order to achieve the lofty summit of responsible adulthood. Yeah, we recently did a show about the film that actually came out, um, you know, in the UK in 1971 called The Clockwork Orange, and we called the show A War on a Clockwork Orange. And uh, the film itself... Uh, by the way, I've kind of followed your lead, and I'm getting real into film analysis these days. I think I might make a I might make a thing out of that on this show. But uh, yeah, we were looking at the film, and, and not just so much uh, the meaning of the film and the message of the film, but how the film became a lightning rod in British society uh, for 
all of these problems that were already going on. You know, you have that post-war shell-shocked or post-traumatic stress disorder generation becoming adults there. And I think that was a line that I used in the, in the show was it, when there's no foreigners around, you blame the kids. And it, it's really unfortunate that, um, you know, Clockwork Orange became just a symbol of youth and all that was wrong when in reality, uh, what's first the author Burgess and later the filmmaker Kubrick were trying to do were, uh, you know, reflect problems that are already existed. But, um, you know, this kind of this is moving us right into the topic nicely. Uh, I talked to you maybe six months ago about this uh, this idea for a show that I had to to reach out to maybe some new people uh, who are coming to these ideas, and you know, maybe as so many do, they first experienced uh, libertarianism, for lack of a better description, through politics, and uh, you know, here we are six months later after another season of political hopefulness and reality has set in on the whole Ron Paul, Rand Paul, Gary Johnson thing, failed ballot initiatives. And, and there's also those people, too, who feel like maybe they've been spinning their wheels for a while and there hasn't been any um, meaningful progress. So whether we're talking about, you know, when we, people first understand these ideas and they first embrace these ideas and they I think I think anger is a natural emotion whether they're reflecting on their own childhood or, or they're taking these ideas and, you know, looking at society through the lens of the philosophy of liberty, through voluntarism. And, um, you know, I'm sure you, you have a very active board at your site, freedomainradio.com. Do you, have you fielded a lot of questions or a lot of uh, dismay from new people on these types of issues? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's no doubt that, you know, Free Domain Radio and, and other shows like it, well, I don't think there are that many other shows like it, but let's just say Free Domain Radio, just to speak for my own uh, footprint on the web, uh, definitely it looks like there's a, um, you know, that the airplane carrying all of the political libertarians crash landed uh, somewhere off the coast of the island of philosophy and, you know, a fair number of detritus debris and people are washing up. Uh, uh, on the shore saying, you know, well, I, I put everything I had into this political stuff and, uh, and now I need to figure out another approach to bring liberty about. And um, there is, of course, a lot of frustration. Uh, the, the numbers have barely shifted. Uh, in fact, they've, they've shifted in some ways downwards over the past 40 years. When the first libertarian candidate polled at about 1%, and um, Harry Brown polled, polled at about 1%, one be one in a bit, and I think Gary Johnson got about, what was it? Oh, yes, 1%. Uh, because, mm. um, you know, people, uh, they understand, like, it's it's not really changing. And the reason it's not changing is pretty clear. So it's, people say, well, look, I converted three people to libertarianism uh, over the last couple of months. And that's great. I mean, that's, that's you know, three or four more than, than there were before. But it's kind of like the job situation, right? They say, oh, the economy created 50,000 jobs last year. Yes, but you need 150,000 jobs a month just to keep pace with new people coming into the workforce. We are converting people, but, you know, every single year, tens of millions of children come out of government schools full-on status. I mean, we simply cannot keep up with the propaganda machine of the public school, let alone well, what what's going on to, in the churches. Sorry, what go ahead. What does that mean to convert people? Like, like I, I, more specifically, they say, yes, I'm, I'm into this. But I think the place 
where most of them go. And maybe the reason I've wondered this myself is that when people first understand these ideas and then they look at how society actually functions and they look back at their own experiences as a child, as a student, uh, the anger, the betrayal, maybe for some, you know, as we've seen, there's people who are making a lot of money on the Internet off other people's paranoia. Uh, It seems like there is this gravitation to politics. And I've wondered if people go there because, you know, anger, betrayal, paranoia, fear, politics seems like such an appropriate outlet for those kinds of emotions. It seems like that's the purpose of it, almost. Yeah, I think you're talking about the the doom porn that seems to pervade (laughs) a lot of the uh, libertarian uh, websites. And uh, I mean, I certainly understand that. Uh, I'm probably a little less charitable uh, about this. Like so, uh, I, I did a debate uh, a, a little while back with a, um, a a liberal named Sam Cedar. Yes, and I got a lot of uh, complaints from people about that debate, where uh, people were saying, "Oh, you should have you know pinned him to the mat and really exposed him for what he was or whatever it is." And and for me, I'm like, I just look, I just want to get through to the peaceful parenting stuff. I want to lay out a a a, um, a foundation for why we can have a peaceful future. And then I want people to take the bait called, how do we get there? And then I'm going to bring out the peaceful parenting. And I have a question for you. This is a a question, it is directly related to the political thing. So who is more committed to the non-aggression principle? A libertarian who spanks his children or a liberal who does not spank his children? I would say the person who does not spank their children. Right, because because this that's is something that's you all, can actually affect, right? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the rest of it is just like proxy. It's easy, like when you put when you're putting distance between uh, you know yourself or or your ideology and the actual acts of aggression down the line. Like I've talked to liberals, I've talked to conservatives. I say, let's play this game. I don't do this anymore because it turned out to be just amazingly unproductive. But I would say, let's play this game called skip to the gun, where we just skip all the steps of you know all the platitudes. And you get me right to the part where somebody's pointing a gun at me if I don't do exactly what you want. Um, but they're not actually, these are people who might even be happy, like out in Keene, New Hampshire, there's a lot of uh, fanfare when, say, Ian Freeman, someone like the host of Free Talk Live, gets thrown in jail for some victimless offense. Uh, but those people who are cheering for his incarceration in the comments on some you know, newspaper's website, they're not people who would actually uh, enact physical force against him. So I, I think that the latter in your uh, either-or choice uh, is uh, the much more uh, peaceful of the two options. Yeah, I mean, I have for years been um, trying to stimulate a debate in the libertarian community about um, uh, uh, spanking children, aggression towards children, and it gets virtually no traction. I mean, there have definitely been some people who've uh, who've changed their minds, and certainly... I mean, I've estimated tens of thousands of, of families as a result of my show have, and, and the audience participation in my show have abandoned aggression against their children, which is an incredible, uh, an incredible footprint to leave uh, in the world. I mean, it's like, you know, dropping uh, roses uh, all over the desert and having them grow. So to me, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But I actually have more in common with a liberal who is peaceful with his children than I do with a libertarian who is spanking or yelling at, uh, at his kids, uh, because that... That is actually going to change, right? That the liberal who's not spanking his children is doing much more to bring about a peaceful, voluntary society than someone who rails against the Fed and spanks his kids or justifies it or defends it or refuses to talk about it as a topic worthy of our attention. 
But you and I are not likely to go out and, you know, strangle hobos and, and hold up nuns or whatever it is. But the choice we're going to make about aggression and violence in our lives is almost entirely to do with child raising. That's, that's, I mean, I'm never going to get jumped by nine ninjas and going to have to throw them off with my, you know, cat-like laser brain martial arts moves. That's never going to happen. Uh, if the police come to arrest me, I'm going to go quietly with them because I kind of want to keep uh, body and soul together. The only fundamental choice that I'm going to have to make in my life when it comes to the aggression, the non-aggression principle is with regards to my children. And those people who make choices with regards to their children that conform to the non-aggression principle are the true anarchists. They are the true libertarians. I don't care what they say about the Fed. I don't care what they say about Social Security because that's just words. And who gives a crap about words? What really matters is actions. You know, by their deeds shall you know them. And so leftists uh, and liberals and communists and what uh, commio anarchists and Jacques Fresco folks and, and, and all of these people, hey, if you are peaceful with your children, then we are brothers and sisters. And I don't care what your ideology is because that's actually the foundation for a free society. If you are aggressive towards your children, I don't care what your opinions are about the free market because you simply do not get the non-aggression principle. You do not understand it. You do not grok it in any kind of fundamental Heinleinian sense. So the, the goal of politics and reason people are drawn to politics is it's not socially volatile fundamentally, right? That the idea for politics is the idea that someone is going to come in and do all the crap that I don't want to do. Someone's going to come in and, and, and save me and, and, and reduce aggression and, and fix the Constitution and, uh, and repeal the minimum wage, privatize money. I don't know what it is that people want. It's someone's going to come in on a white horse, and I'm not going to have to do the difficult work of confronting my own history, of making a vital and fundamental, a visceral commitment to the non-aggression principle in my own life and deal with all the fallout that happens when you, you decide not to act aggressively towards your children. Uh, so it's a way of managing your own anxiety about the changes that you need to make in your life. I don't mean you, but one needs to make in one's life. It, it doesn't have anything to do with actually trying to free the world. It's, um, uh, it's entirely a defense mechanism because um, empirically we've been trying for hundreds, if not thousands of years to use uh, philosophy and argument and empiricism and reason to free the world. And um, it really hasn't worked. The one thing that has demonstrably worked is improving the peace uh, and reason and negotiation skills of children. That empirically, scientifically, validly, historically, just look at psychohistory.com, that works in reducing violence. That is the only thing that empirically and repeatedly works in reducing violence and increasing peace and reason among mankind. If we look at it empirically and objectively, it's all about peace with children. Everything else is just distraction from that essential fact. Yeah, I know you had uh, Nathaniel Brandon on your show a couple couple years ago now, probably, and he has this this book that I've been reading through uh, recently. In fact, uh, Wes Bertrand was doing a series about it on Complete Liberty. We talked about it a little bit on my show, and the name of the book is Breaking Free. And, you know, when you describe these, these libertarians who wind up, you know, people who profess the philosophy of liberty and wind up, you know, striking their own children, um, he has this concept in the book, Brandon does, uh, he calls it uh, the inheritance. And, you know, I, I could just look at my own life and my own parenting and, you know, I see where my parents came from and my father, especially, I think, wanted to do a better job than his, with his children than his mother did with him. I think that's normal. I think that's certainly uh, something that a lot of parents, maybe not, you know, people who aren't uh, the best parents or even putting 100 percent effort into parenting 
they say, gosh, I want to do better than my parents. And, you know, his upbringing was awful. So, but if you don't deal with the impact that that had on you, you know, it doesn't, the inheritance is going to continue. Basically, you're going to pass that on to your next generation, despite your, your desire to want to be a better parent. If you don't look at, um, you know, how that affected you, um, then I think that's maybe one of the reasons that we see that kind of parenting, you know, the libertarian who spanks their child, because they've never done the, the personal freedom stuff. Kind of goes back to the politics thing, too, is, you know, my first instinct when I learned about these ideas was to run to the thing that was furthest away from me, the Federal Reserve, electron. Yeah, yeah. Um, that the, the, the furthest thing away from things that I could actually control. And that was the idea with this red pill blues is that, yeah, you take the red pill and you go and do all those things and you feel very small and you feel very defeated and you don't feel efficacious. And, uh, you know, I think unfortunately a lot of people give up and they don't start at, uh, you know, in the realm, uh, or the sphere, however you want to picture it. Uh, of things they actually could change and control uh, in their lives. I certainly know that I didn't even look there for a long time. So, Yeah, no, and I, I think that is very tempting um, because it is a lot safer than having to look at where can I promote the non-aggression principle in my own life. Um, you know, I, I know what you mean about, about parents, right? So there is... Uh, all the way from, you know, all parents do the very best they can with the knowledge that they have, you know, all the way to some radical feminist thing that, you know, all parents are patriarchal bastards who <laughs> want to eviscerate their children with some sort of bore to fangs of masculinity or something. But um, when I think about violence against children, I think about it often in terms of domestic uh, abuse, right? So I don't know. I mean, this may be a little bit before your time, but sort of when I was grow up, growing up in the 70s, there was... Uh, a really strong push towards awareness of domestic abuse. And domestic abuse basically meant husbands hitting wives, husbands beating wives, husbands mistreating wives. And it was it was really powerful propaganda. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. I mean, it was a 30-second clip. You'd see them on TV. Uh, you know, spousal abuse is unacceptable. You know, one hit and you walk. Uh, any form of violence is unacceptable in uh, in human relationships. Like, you, you know, don't stand for it. And as a result, you know, then divorce rates went went through the roof. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. Um, she came back from Chile. And Chile has recently um, allowed no-fault divorce. The divorce rate is 80%. 80% because you don't actually have to prove that you're being mistreated. You can just say, I walk from this marriage. And the, the whole family is is falling apart there. And I don't remember, like when I was a kid growing up, um, and this happened all the way through my teens and into my 20s. I don't remember a single instance of anyone saying, well, husbands who beat their wives are doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have. You know, they have, they have really great intentions. Maybe they're just lacking particular skills. Or, like, I don't remember any of that. What I do remember was, you know, they were really portrayed as bad guys beating up their wives, yelling at their wives, abusing their wives, cutting off money from their wives, abandoning their wives, having affairs on their wives, ignoring their wives, whatever it is. The sort of male chauvinist pig thing. I don't remember any sympathy for the abuser. 
Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's what I recall as a kid. And that is how I look at, uh, to some degree, how I look at sort of the parent-adult-child. When, when you're a child-child, you sort of struggle through as best you can. But the parent-adult-child, I'm not sure why the standards suddenly shift, you know, where we're not allowed to have any sympathy at all for a man who hits his wife uh, even once, but parents who repeatedly hit their children, whether it's spanking or something even more serious, we have to start making up all these excuses for them. And I can't fathom that. I mean, other than maybe it's just a hangover of honor their mother and their father, you know, the one commandment that we seem to be having a great deal of trouble uh, examining rationally. But that's sort of where, where I come from. Like I read on, on um, uh, psychology websites, they say, you know, if he hits once, he's going to hit again. If he hits you for the first time, leave and never look back. But then when it comes to uh, an abusive parent, the story completely changes. And it's like, well, you know, they're struggling. They're doing the best they can. They themselves had bad childhoods. Like, I don't ever remember when I was a kid, if a, a husband beat his wife, I don't ever remember people saying, well, you see, but, but he had a difficult, the, the husband had a difficult childhood. So she's really got to stay with him because she needs to understand that he's struggling with that. And maybe he didn't prepare as much as he could for marriage, but he's doing the best he can. There was none of that. There was just a clear line drawn in the sand. And I think which had significant, uh, significant effects. I mean, uh, abuse against women declined by a third after no fault divorce went in. It seems that promoting voluntarism within marriage has done a great deal to reduce spousal abuse. I also believe that promoting voluntarism in the parent-adult-child relationship um, is also going to do its part to reduce violence against children. Um, so anyway, that's sort of where I'm coming from. And so I have a little bit less tolerance for, maybe a lot less tolerance for their doing the best they can argument, because I certainly never saw that uh, when I was growing up for uh, a far less egregious abuser than a parental abuser. No, I, 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 in my perspective, it is a little bit different. I'm sure that's a question that you fielded countless number of times. My parents were really great. Uh, they did the best they can. Uh, you know, I know when I was growing up, this is something that I've discussed on the show before. Uh, you know, my mother uh, was, you know, I would describe her today as sort of very weak will. She was very either emotionally distant or uh, reactionary, like she would you know, flip out about something. And there was very little in between. And this was a, a, a very difficult thing to, uh, you know, experience as a young child. But, you know, as I grew up and I obviously got out of that situation uh, when I was 18 and went on to do other things. Uh, during that time, my mother got divorced. She went into therapy. Uh, you know, and I, I would say today, as I know her today, one of the most significant transformations that I've seen uh, in a human. That's great. That, that really is wonderful. Known in my life. So that's, that's a, a little bit of a different perspective, but also the other thing too, about, you know, I, I know that, that using, using a phrase like empathizing with an abuser is very, very explosive. And, um, I, I would, I would attack maybe a bit of a selfish motive to it. When we look at, let's just take the parent child relationship and look at things that might have happened to us when we were kids. Um, I, I think that probably the most serious and in-depth, evaluation of anyone's parenting is going to be done by that person's child probably later in life. Now, maybe the neighbors have something to say. Maybe grandma has something to say once in a while. But the most in-depth, meaningful evaluation of what somebody is a parent is probably going to be done by uh, you know, a pretty self-aware child later in life and trying to understand how that affected them. Now, um, of course, anger is uh, certainly, I think, very healthy emotion. I've been plenty angry about uh, you know a lot of things that happened to me related to family and otherwise. But um, you know, I realized at one point when I felt like I was holding a lot of different 
resentment towards a lot of different people in a lot of different areas of my life. But I was never going to have that, uh, you know, Emperor Palpatine return the Jedi power to transfer any of that electrically into somebody else's body. That I was just renting out space to, um, you know, all of those people through the resentments in my own head. And that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was, yes, anger is healthy. Yes, resentment is, uh, you know, a normal product of that anger. But how do people process that, acknowledge that, and let it go, in your opinion? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, and so there's um, people who've, and I'm just going to talk about abuse victims here. I'm not, of course, putting you in that category, Brett, but I'm just talking about my amateur opinions about abuse victims. So people who have been victimized, the the scientific studies seem to be quite clear that the best chance you have for not re-inflicting that abuse is to get angry about it. Because when you get angry about it, you engage your sort of moral immune system to recognize it as a, as a great wrong that was done to you uh, and to, to get angry about the way that you were treated um, and not to try and over-empathize with your abuser. I mean, that's really, I think, quite a dangerous thing to do. And we're not asked to do that in any other sphere, like to take an extreme example, a woman who gets raped is not asked to empathize with the rapist. A man who gets assaulted is not asked to to empathize with his assaulter and so on. Uh, but so I think that that's, and this comes out of um, an article by Robin Grill, which I read recently, the psych- psychologist from Australia, that the science is very clear. The best ch- way to 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 stop the cycle of abuse is to get angry at having been abused. And this is why I'm very critical of people who make up excuses for abusers because it's not because I hate the abusers it's because I really don't want this to be reinflicted and the best way to have it not being reinflicted on your own kids is to get angry at how you were treated now people who've yeah, been victimized Grill. sorry go ahead yeah, Robin Grill uh, who you've interviewed right yeah yeah you do you you've done you've gotten around you've got you've uh my good guess I'm very envious but uh uh, yeah, I, I like Robin Grill, and I've been reading through some of his work. And uh, it, it was in your interview or another where I heard him use the the phrase "denormalizing" that yeah. parental treatment because it's all we have, it's all we know. We have nothing to. You can't say, you know, my parents compared to what you might get glimpses of other people's relationship with their mom or their dad, but that's normal parental treatment. And um, you know, opera, a lot of opportunity exists in anger. So I, I think that's that's what he was driving at, right? That getting in yeah, touch it is, with it is, is a way But the problem it. is, of course, if you've been the victim of, of child abuse, I mean, child abusers don't harm you when they're calm. They don't harm you when they're happy. Uh, they harm you when they're enraged. And so the, the, the great danger, of course, is that we then create this connection, which is that because I was abused when my parents got angry, anger is abusive. Mm-hmm. And that is a very dangerous supposition to have. It's perfectly understandable that we would have that. But that which you most need to protect yourself and your future children from abuse is anger. So if you say, well, my parents always abused me when I'm angry, when they were angry, therefore anger is abusive, therefore I can't get angry, therefore the opposite of abuse is to make up excuses and pretend to forgive my parents, that's how it reproduces. This is the great danger. If you don't get angry at it, it's most likely to reproduce uh, psychologically and scientifically. And so this is the great danger, right? So my parents abused me when I was ang- when they were angry. Therefore, anger is abusive. Therefore, I'm going to get all Buddhist uh, on them and say, well, they did the best they could and I'm not going to get angry. But this is the problem. This is how it's most likely to reproduce, right? So this is the great danger. So finding a way to get angry 
without that anger being abusive and destructive is is a is a challenge and i think that something needs to be worked out and with a very good therapist and and uh, uh, with journaling and and with all of that but to, learning how to become angry without being abusive uh, saves you from being abusive at least the most likely thing to save you from being abusive uh, it, it gives you a great deal of security and safety uh, in the world because anger is the body's defense system against exploitation emotional exploitation financial exploitation uh, um, uh, hierarchy exploitation business exploitation uh, love expo- sex exploitation whatever uh, anger is our natural defense we wouldn't want to not have an immune system that's called having aids or living in a bubble in a Seinfeld episode or something. We don't want to have that. We want to have the natural reaction to uh, dangerous and invasive um, viruses. And uh, human exploitation is a dangerous and invasive virus. Uh, It can strip away years uh, of your life and and half your savings or all of them if you get conned and exploited. So the, the essential thing is to decouple abuse from anger and to learn how to get angry in a way that is actually protective of yourself without necessarily being abusive towards others and certainly not abusive towards the innocent. Uh, and that's not easy. That's not, it takes a lot of self-knowledge. Uh, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes, uh, I think, working with a therapist to learn that. But it is not the case that if you get angry at having been abused, that you then suddenly fall into anger forever. You become destructive and abusive and so on. Quite the opposite is true. If you can, you know, as Aristotle said, it's the mean, right? So a, a deficiency of uh, courage, right, he called uh, cowardice, and an excess of courage he called foolhardiness, right, where you just go charging over the World War I trench with, you know, a, a pea shooter and a, a thong, and, you know, you're not going to do much except get uh, riddled with Swiss cheese. And so learning how to get the right level of anger, and Aristotle said, he said, look, getting angry is easy. Anyone can get angry, and a poke a, poke a baboon with a stick, he's going to get angry, uh, and anyone can not get angry, can pretend to take the high road, can swallow their upset and not get angry. Neither of those are uh, morally good or, or the right thing to do. It is difficult to get angry uh, in the right way at the right time, you know, for the right effect, uh, under the right circumstances, in a just way. But it is a skill that we really essentially do need uh, to learn because without the capacity to get justly angry, uh, we are open uh, to significant amounts of um, uh, of exploitation, and therefore we will end up exploiting others because it tends to be a kind of pass-through equation. Yeah, I talked about uh, recently too. You know, um, in in parenting, uh, I think this is. Uh, we'll take a break a couple minutes before we go on to our next topic. But um, the uh, it's okay to let your children know that you have that what they do affects you in an emotional way, right? So I think that would be someplace that would be incredibly dangerous. You hadn't mastered, maybe not even mastered, but become aware of how anger can turn into abuse. We're not just talking about physical abuse, you know, verbal abuse, disconnecting, uh, you know, that threat of the withdrawal of affection, uh, parental affection from children are all consequences of, you know, yes, I get angry, I shouldn't get angry, uh, I'm going to try to handle it or mishandle it like this. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, but, uh, do you want to move on to another topic? I just wanted to mention one other thing, which sure. is that in my experience, um, anger can be extremely intimate. I get that sounds, that sounds very counterintuitive to a lot of people, but, um, the rage, which is, you know, uh, a sort of an immature and explosive way of avoiding whatever prior 
traumas and hurts have, have discombobulated you uh, or, or in a sense, defending the actions of abusers by reenacting them and normalizing them, by being inhabited by uh, the sort of biting ghosts that um, fed on your childhood. That, of course, is destructive. But um, when people in my life, if they get angry at me or I get angry at them, we have an honest conversation, it really does draw us closer. Because anger basically is saying, I really care about something that you did. You know, it is not the opposite of love. It is a component of love because we don't all act perfectly. And in our imperfections lies knowledge, self-knowledge and the growth of intimacy. So anger in intimate relationships, being angry about something that someone else did, having them be angry at you, having an honest discussion about that, you know, without attack, without insults, without um, uh, escalations and extrapolations. You always, you never, but simply being honest about the feeling of anger can be an intensely intimate and growing experience. And of course, if you if you are in a love relationship or even a friendship, which is another kind of love relationship, if you can both get angry and talk it through, uh, what an amount of trust there is in that relationship. I mean, so many relationships fail and falter because anger is either acted out in an immature, raging way, which is really the avoidance of the true issues uh, and, a, and a significant lack of preparation for an intimate relationship. Mm. Uh, or people suppress their anger and therefore they're not close to each other because now they're essentially lying to each other. You know that old cliche of you go home and your girlfriend is storming around and uh, your wife is storming around and you say, what's the matter, honey? Nothing. Bang, right? But this is lying. This is false. This drives people apart. If you can get angry with people or they can get angry with you in a way that is honest, that is, that is true, uh, that is not abusive, it is an incredibly binding experience. Uh, and, and not codependently, but an, a very intimate experience. Uh, and, and this is something that people who haven't worked with their anger, I think, don't really get uh, that anger is part of uh, being in an intimate relationship. We're all going to do things that annoy each other. But being able to talk through that anger is an incredible cementing and trust growth in the relationship. So let me ask you this. And I, I know this is a lot of the stuff that you cover in real-time relationships, your book. Uh, that I've also talked about on the show uh, in the past. But when you are expressing anger to another person, how I, I'm interested in, in how it's framed, because one thing that I've noticed is that so often, and I know I've done this plenty in the past, um, I, I've framed descriptions of how I actually feel in terms of what somebody else is doing to me. So instead of saying, you know, uh, I have a need for... Uh, autonomy, or I might say, I'm feeling coerced, right? This is something that's being done. <laughs> that's not a feeling. But yeah. <laughs> right, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling coerced. I'm feeling judged. I'm feeling manipulated. I'm feeling threatened. I mean, the, what the common denominator is, is those are all verbs of, that uh, people do to you. And it's not about what you're truly feeling. So it, it's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's not too dissimilar to what we were talking about before as yeah. going to the furthest thing away from you politically and trying to control that and just feeling powerless. If anger is directed towards what somebody, or, or if that, that emotional energy or awareness is directed towards what somebody else is doing, I think it kind of can get you into that same non-efficacious feeling trap. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, for me, the feeling, it, it's got to pass the elbow test. And the elbow test, like say you get an, a pain in your elbow. Right. And, and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, where does it hurt? He says elbow. And he says, well, what does it feel like? You don't say, well, I, I feel that my elbow is being exploited and I feel that my elbow is, is seeking more autonomy uh, and, and I feel that my elbow is being coerced. 
the doctor would say, I have no idea what any of that means. Well, it's kind of a throb or it's a dull ache or it's a sharp pain or it's an intermittent uh, discomfort or, you know, it's just a kind of tension or whatever it is, right? Those are things that can actually – so think of it like a physical pain. So if, if I'm angry at someone, if I'm angry at a friend, then there's two possibilities. Either I know exactly what happened and therefore I can go and explain everything and so on uh, or since that never happens, I never know exactly what happened. I can go and say to my friend, listen, uh, Bob, when, when this happened, when you said this, when I did that, I felt this physical surge of, of tension and anger. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Because generally that's the truth. In, in relationships, it's, it's complex. It's really complex. To, to rush in with a conclusion doesn't open a dialogue, right? The moment you have a conclusion in an interaction, you are no longer having a dialogue, and to have a dialogue about anger, we have to be vulnerable enough to say, I'm angry and I don't know why. Because I guarantee you that's always going to be an honest statement. I do not know why I'm angry. I mean, it's a little different if someone drives over your foot. Then you're, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about in, in sort of intimate relationship. You want to open up a dialogue about anger. And we tend to try and control the interaction by coming in with a conclusion, right? So as you know, in real-time relationships, I'm very much against uh, coming into a complex, um, intimate interaction with conclusions. Well, you, you know, I'm angry because you said this and that was insulting to me and, uh, and therefore you did the wrong thing and it's all because of your relationship with your aunt spider and that's exactly what it is. Well, you can't go anywhere with that because you've just come in with all these conclusions. Central planning is a conclusion, right? This is why communism doesn't work. It's the free market is a dialogue. It's a negotiation about prices and needs needs and wants and preferences and, and services and goods and all this kind of stuff. Central planning is, you know, we need 500 tons of timber delivered to Minks tomorrow morning. There's no negotiation, right? So you understand that to, to come into a relationship discussion with conclusions is to be a Soviet central planner. And it's really the opposite of a free market dialogue that's needed. So you go in, you say, I'm angry. I don't know why. It happened when you said this, but I don't know exactly why. Um, what were you feeling? And then you can actually have a dialogue about it where you're really mutually exploring what happened for you in the interaction without coming to the inevitable self-righteous judgment conclusions called, you did X, you're a bad person, you made me angry. These things uh, are generally not true. Uh, they're dishonest. And as a result, because they're both conclusions and therefore necessarily dishonest, they close off opportunities for exploration. And intimacy is curiosity and exploration. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think we're both, uh, both examples are similar in that it's jumping the gun, right? So whether you're jumping the gun in a way where you are passing a judgment on what the other person is doing, you're doing blank to me or jumping the gun on the analysis of what we're actually feeling when in the moment you, you might not know. All right. That makes sense. Uh, do you want to take a two minute break and then I'll bring in my co-host and we can do a little parenting talk before we let you go, Steph? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So everybody, we will be back in, let's say, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's say about two minutes. This is School Sucks Live. We'll be back real quick. Uh, Steph, feel free to uh, freestyle if you want. <laughs> freestyle rap. <right. laughs> talking about anger, nothing like banger. This is what we want when we have an intimacy. I'll stop now. All right, so um, we're starting again, and uh, in the studio with me, you know my regular co-host on the show, Jason. Jason, how you doing? Doing good, Brad. Glad to be back. Yeah, it's been a while. So, out traveling the country with the kids, visiting grandparents and whatnot. 
to Ohio. Yep. So uh, we talked earlier in the day and you were saying that you might have some questions for this man about uh, parenting. Yeah, you'd think I would after uh, all these years. So where should we... Hey, here's a question for you, Steph. How do you deal with Christmas at your house? In terms of uh, presents and the daughter and all that surrounds that ritual. I'm not sure I follow the question. I want to make sure I'm answering something specific. I mean, if okay. we have a regular so, old Christmas. Um, we, uh, I mean, my daughter's birthday is close to Christmas. So I've explained to her that most of the cheap people in her life will only have give her one present. And it's a thief that uh, Father Time will maybe pay her back with overtime. Uh, but uh, that's just something she's going to have to deal with overtime. Uh, but, you know, we, we get a tree. We, we put up the tree. We put on uh, Michael Bublé's Christmas album sometimes and um, enjoy the lights and, and all that. So, yeah, we've got presents under the tree. And, um, I mean, we've explained to her, you know, she sees Santa everywhere. And, of course, she knows that it's a fun story, right? Because we go through the logic of how it couldn't possibly happen, but it's a fun story. And... Um, uh, she enjoys her presence and, uh, you know, we have uh, parties and all that, friends over. Uh, it's a very relaxed and enjoyable time. So um, that's sort of how it works in our household. Again, if there's any uh, any hiccups in yours, I'd certainly be happy to, you know, lend you my uh, amateur vocals. Yeah, so um, two years, uh, my, my daughter is turning six uh, uh, next month. And uh, two years ago, Christmas, uh, we had set the... Uh, what I find to be a dangerous precedent of, uh, you know, having uh, presents on on Christmas, um, and two years ago it turned into just two months worth of crazy trauma over the anticipation of waiting for these presents, uh, and uh, it it became completely unbearable, such that uh, last year we just said. Forget it. And we, we ended up uh, doing the presents uh, two weeks early. And then this year right. we ended up doing the presents four weeks early just to, just to get it over. <laughs> we could, right. Couldn't could right. handle it anymore. Right. And uh, right. So is, is that anything like that that you've experienced with your daughter? or? Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, children, particularly around the age of, of three and four, I mean, they're fiendish materialists and their sense of gratification deferral is measured in the subatomic nanosecond range. And so I generally work with a 10 to 20 to 1 ratio. So um, two weeks for a kid is like 40 weeks for you. And 40 weeks is like, well, if you have them here, why would I wait for 40 weeks uh, for something that's that's great? And certainly if the government, uh, like if a, if a store said, you know, well, thank you for the refund, we will ship you a check in 40 weeks, you'd be like, well, no. <laughs> Sooner, if you we've got the money, we're just going to wait for forty weeks to send you the check. Um, that would probably be kind of annoying for you if the government said uh, your refund check is in the mail. It will be there in just under a year. You'd be like, well, you've got the money. You can type it into the computers if you want. So I think just recognizing that from a child standpoint, you know, shiny baubles, toys, and that are hugely fun to play with, and um, their sense of time is very different from from that of an adults. And I think that's sort of a, just a basic thing to understand there, you know, that the horizon for when things are going to happen, uh, is, is pretty short. Like, you know, my daughter can get sort of 
the day after tomorrow, kind of. Uh, she gets that that's not too far away. But, you know, you ask, ask her to estimate things, you know, like, um, uh, you know, how long do you think it will take for, you know, the eggs to boil? You know, like 30 days. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all pretty, pretty abstract. So um, I think that's – and, of course, remember that, that Christmas is – for kids who have no sense of a calendar, a Christmas is a completely arbitrary deferral. Right, that that they it makes no sense to them whatsoever, right? So it's like I have these toys, but I'm not going to give them to you for a month. Is cruel for children, and they're going to protest that, right? I mean, it it, it is just cruel. So I mean, there's a couple of things you can do. Of course, you can get them little presents, like little dinky presents, to open every day leading up to it. You can sit down and spend half a day explaining, you know, why uh, that has has to wait. You can give them their presents early and then give them another present or two little ones to open up under Christmas, uh, on Christmas and so on. But, yeah, kids are, you know, they're fiendish materialists and they're kind of bottomless holes of consumption, right? So I was just sort of making a joke. I had to go um, uh, get a key made today. And, you know, when we were last in the hardware store, my daughter saw one of these little rainbow keys. And um, she desperately wanted it. And I wasn't going to buy her a rainbow key. But anyway, she was so charming that the guy at the key counter just gave her that, which I thought was nice. And I sort of pointed it out. I said, you know, do you remember that rainbow key we got here? You were desperate for it like you would have gone to the ends of the earth. You know, here, here, take my hand. You know, cut it off at the wrist. Just give me that rainbow key. It's oxygen for me. It's blood to a vampire. If I don't have that, I will surely die. And, um, you know, two days later, she didn't even know where it was. <laughs> so reminding kids of, of the transient nature of their fiendish desires uh, is, I think, really important. I mean, it's, it's a way of building empirical evidence, right? To me, all conflicts to do with, with childhood are almost completely solved by repetitive preparation for it, right? So if you get stuff for your kid and they, as they inevitably do, they're dying for it. And then, you know, a day or two later, they don't even know where it is. You point this out to them repeatedly. You point this out to them repeatedly, not in a way to sort of shame or humiliate them or say, ah, I told you, you weren't going to you know, play with that thing forever, but just to point out. So then the next time they want something, you can say, hey, remember we talked about this thing you wanted and then didn't play with? Remember this thing we talked about? I think this might be the same kind of thing. What do you think? And they can sort of talk about it and you can sort of whittle them off that you know, that almost epileptic seizure of <laughs> materialism that, that grabs them so strongly that they just desperately have to have that thing. And, and if they don't have that thing, they're just never going to be happy to just remind them that they've had this a whole bunch of times before and they haven't really kept that same desire for stuff. Um, so I think it's, it's a lot about preparation. But yeah, just, just remember, it's like, you know, I have your toy, but I'm not going to give it to you until infinity days have passed. I mean, that for a child, I think it's just, it is kind of like a torture for, for a time marker that is completely arbitrary and incomprehensible to a four-year-old. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, aside from the, uh, the, the time aspect, too, there's also the, the expectation and the uh, sense of entitlement that I think the whole uh, charade uh, uh, instills. I remember when I was a little kid, the whole uh, Christmas thing really turned me into kind of an asshole uh, because <laughs> I, I wanted certain things, and if I didn't get them, then you know. Oh, come on, give you, yourself some credit. You might have been an asshole before that came along. I mean, yeah. just you know, don't necessarily blame I, I Christmas. Like it was the Christmas ahead. that turned me into an asshole, though. Like I, I, right. I feel like I'm, I might not otherwise have been one. And and I see that uh, with with my kids too. They, they, you know, I want I want this. I want this. Like, well, and maybe. sugar does it too, right? Um, 
maybe i don't know well sugar. i don't know i mean my daughter's yeah. a bit of a sugar fiend so that can that can happen to her well, as well we, yeah we keep that away as much as possible right okay so not so much a case with you but um um so uh, what, what do you mean when you say entitlement i just want to make sure i understand that the way you're using that phrase or the, that, that word uh, I, um I deserve presents and people will give them to me and they will give me what I want because that is the way it's supposed to be. Right. 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 I mean, is that not true? Uh, aren't people supposed to give them presents that they want when those days arrive? Well, the, uh, that's the culture that has been bred, but I don't know that that's... Uh... Well, no, 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 no. They, they wouldn't get that message unless you as the parent gave it to them, right? I mean, presents are clearly supposed to be given to kids on their birthday, right? That's what... And, and Christmas or whatever, right? And you as a parent would have communicated that to your kids. Oh, it's your birthday. We're going to have presents or we're going to have cake or whatever, right? So it's not entitlement if you tell them that's how it's supposed to be, if that makes any sense. Like, if you say, well, you need to sleep in your bed, it's not entitlement if they say, well, I have to sleep in my bed. I mean, that's just following the rules that have been set down by the parents or the expectations that have been set down by the parents. And clearly, the gifts are supposed to be to make the child happy. And to make the child happy, you have to give uh, give a gift that um, the child will like. So it seems to me that these would have been things that you would have communicated to the child rather than sort of an innate entitlement that they would have because of the event. Does that make sense? I sure and and um, I I don't know if we're speaking the same language I guess but uh, my uh, intention was not to blame the kid but uh, to to blame um, the parents for causing this to happen. But sorry, what's uh, so what's the blame? The entitlement, because you said asshole, right? So the entitlement is a rational expectation that is set by the parent. So you can't really obviously that's not a negative thing. But is it that there's no gratitude? Is that what you sort of feel? Right. So the kid just like, hey, I'm going to get my presents. They better be great presents. And if they're not great presents, I'm going to be like really upset. So there. Right. 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 And it seems like that might, that regarding the one specific event might spill over into one's attitude toward uh, other aspects of life. Right. Like there's just this conveyor belt of good things that come my way and I don't have to lift a finger and that kind of stuff, right? Right. Can I ask a question? Um, what kind of exposure do they have to uh, media, your two kids? Uh, Dora the Explorer. Okay. Um, so Nickelodeon. Uh, a little bit of that. Mostly they watch um, How It's Made and Mighty Machines. Mighty Machines. So it's programmed geared towards their age group. But commercials too, I would assume, right? Yeah, uh, because this was something. This is something that I think we often overlook. Certainly, as far as our coverage of it. I mean, I just talked about it for the first time on the last show. Was uh, marketing young people, and uh, you know the science and the resources and the money, uh, the psychological research that has gone into, um, you know, turning children into. Uh, you know, consumers. Now, I, I think children, uh, I, John Taylor Gatto pointed out 20 years ago that, uh, you know, children and addicts are two groups that don't necessarily understand when to stop consuming something. And, you know, the goal of school was to, you know, turn 
to everybody into children or to stop them from growing up. But um, as far as the the marketing is concerned in youth marketing, there used to be a real clear differentiation when I was watching TV when I was a kid is like, this is the show and this is something else. Right. This is this is um, the Smurfs. This is a guy selling cars. You know, (laughs) one is an animated blue living under a mushroom. Can't read so good kind of thing. The other is Bob from uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and he's got a car dealership. But today, there is virtually uh, no differentiation between, um, you know, the actual program that is there for entertainment and the commercials. In fact, a lot of the times, it's the same characters that these children love so much through these shows that then come on in those two-minute breaks uh, to participate in selling stuff to them. So I, I think that that's another, I mean, it sounded like one of the things that you were talking about, Step, is the importance of being proactive. And this is one of the things that I've harped on uh, a lot in the past, and it's something that um, I've you know, learned from my own experience working with young people, um, that I think it's important to have conversations with children as young as possible about you know, what the nature of television is and, and what the purpose of, of advertising is. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, we've we've had all those conversations with her starting when she was two and three years old. Um, but the other thing, too, is that to me, it's it's always well worth, you know, buying a DVD, which doesn't have commercials rather than television or buying a subscription to a, a, a television station that doesn't have commercials. Um, you know, that's going to be a lot cheaper in the long run than having them exposed to a lot of commercials. Because, yeah, as you point out, it's kind of embedded in the shows. And and um, uh, so I think that's important as far as you know i I saw the sort of the image came to my mind thinking about this issue of generosity right so the fear is that if you're really generous with children then they'll just kind of sit back and expect things to come to them and not reciprocate but to me you know when when my daughter was very little and and even still now you know i'm constantly teaching her new words and um uh, teaching her you know concepts and 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 sentence structure and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of like saying, well, you know, if you just keep teaching children language, they'll never speak back. Well, they do. I mean, they, they are very enthusiastic to speak back. And, to, and, you know, my daughter's now at the point where she's sort of asking me, you know, if I'm gone for half a day, you know, how did you, uh, what did you do with your time? Where did you go? How did you have fun? Like, she's really asking me lots of questions. So I think if you're generous towards children, what you're doing is you're modeling generosity. And almost in a sort of universally preferable behavior machine that I think children really are, they will simply reflect that back and become generous that way, right? So I've always shared my food with Isabella, and she is very happy to share her food uh, with me. And, um, you know, I um, always ask her uh, how she slept and how, you know, if she had any dreams, and now she asks me how I slept and, you know, did I have any dreams and will sometimes act out my dreams sort of in the living room. It's really quite surreal, but a lot of fun. And so if you are generous towards your children in you know open-hearted and and give them you know within like reasonable things that are are uh, useful instructive enjoyable and entertaining for them they internalize something called generosity and as long as it's not hooked in with any kind of resentment or or conditional and so on i have found that it really does come back it is just like a boomerang it's sort of involuntary involuntary the way the way that happens there is a phase where it does sort of feel like oh my god i give and i give and i give and that's usually right before it starts coming back. You know, I don't know why that is. It does always seems the moment I get frustrated with my daughter in some particular area, 
it's right before she changes in some great way. Uh, it's, it's really, and I don't think it's as a result of me getting frustrated, but, um, I think if you just are generous, you're actually teaching them what generosity looks like, uh, and therefore they will internalize that in the same way that when you use the correct words for things, they internalize that and then speak those words back to you. So um, I think just trust in generosity will be reciprocated um, because you're really teaching them what it looks like, and they can't, in, in a sense, they can't help. You know, they, my, da- my daughter can't help but use the word apple for an apple because that's what she's been taught, and she can't help but share her food and share her toys and be generous and to resolve things peacefully and to want to negotiate with with everyone all the time because that's what she's been taught. So I think um, just trust that the, you know, that the the effort that you're putting in, the expenditure, the generosity that you're putting in, will be reciprocated. Um, I know it can be tough to trust that at times, but I uh, I've certainly found that to be the case. Can I ask you how much do you think uh, your relationship with your daughter has uh, benefited from the amount of time that you can actually spend with her? And maybe speak to, uh, you know, a little bit about, um, you know, daycare or uh, parent uh, kids often growing up. Like, I, I know, Osborne, your wife is around all the time. You work a pretty regular schedule and you have to travel a little bit. But, I mean, for a lot of families, it's, you know, the kids don't see their parents pretty much all week. And that's yeah. really unfortunate. It's extremely unnatural. Um, it's, it's a great, tra- it's one of the greatest tragedies, I think. So historically, uh, and anthropologists have done a, a fair amount of work on this and, and people can find the reference for this, uh, I think in chapter one of Dr. Philip Zombardo's book, uh, the demise of guys, but historically there was about a four to one ratio of adults to children when children were growing up because You'd be on a farm, your parents would be around, you'd have extended family over all the time, there might be many generations living under one roof. I'm not saying that was all ideal, but I'm saying that the way that we developed, the way that we evolved as a species was with a much higher ratio of parents to children. You know, four to one, no matter how many kids you had, there would be about four to one parents to uh, to children. Now that has completely changed. I mean, it, it's it's more than reversed because it's not like we have you know, one to four kids to adults. Uh, I mean, when your kids go into, um, uh, you know, school, you know, 20 to one, 30 to one, when I worked in a daycare, there were two teachers for about 25 kids, age five to 10. And um, uh, so what's happened is things have more than completely reversed. And now we have 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 or more ratio of children per adult, whereas it should have been quite the opposite, four adults for every single uh, child. And what happens is, of course, children imprint upon those around them. I mean, that's natural. They take their cues. They take their uh, self-esteem. They take their pecking order. They take their instruction, moral, cultural, artistic, you name it, from whoever they're around. We are highly impressionable as a species. I mean, we're like, you know, those that wax that they put that signet ring into. We're just wax. And then culture and and, uh, philosophy and thoughts and habits and politeness, they all impress upon us very deeply. So children are going to absorb whatever they're around. And unfortunately, we have a society where children are almost exclusively influenced by other children. And children cannot raise children. They can't do it. They, in a million miles away, we don't let six-year-olds babysit our children, but we will put our child into a classroom with 20 or 25 other six-year-olds, one harassed and (laughs) distracted uh, adult, and then wonder why peer pressure ends up so important and ends up so destructive. In a, in a child's life. So, and I was just talking about this the other day with my wife. I mean, 
my job as a dad is about 90% done. It's about, it's about 90% done. I mean, I got a little course correction that goes on. There'll be new information and new situations and so on. But my job as a father is, is mostly done because this is my last daughter, my daughter's last year of significant uh, brain development and personality development. You know, by the time she's four, four and a half, five, I mean, it's almost completely done. I mean, it can be changed later in life with great effort and so on. But my job as a parent is, is, is mostly done. Uh, and the rest of it is just <laughs> management a little bit, some tweaking, course correction, and so on. And so I've strongly suggested to people uh, just find whatever you can do to to take that time off and be with your kids when they're growing up. Um, there was a, I, I read a book uh, a long, long time ago. It had a huge influence on me. It's by Daniel Crittenden. It's called What Your Mother Knew But Couldn't Tell You or something like that. Anyway, people can find it. She's a... She's a good writer, and in it she talked about sort of the distant mom. And there was some executive she's, who said, yes, I travel a lot, uh, and I'm, I'm at work a lot, but my children know that I'm always with them in their hearts or in my heart or something like that. And she said, you know, that sounds exactly like you describe someone who was dead. You know, well, she's always with me in my heart and so on. And I remember being really struck by that. And, you know, I didn't really want to get kids or get married back in the day. Uh, that all changed when I met my wife, of course. But... Um, it really is, you know, we take time off from productive earnings to get a college degree or whatever, to travel the world sometimes. You know, take a couple of years off, if you can. I mean, if it's even remotely possible, take a couple of years off. Uh, the bond is so incredibly powerful. And there's so much that occurs in parenting that is um, not concentrated, that is just diluted into the moments and moments. And you never know when the breakthrough is going to happen. You never know when the crisis is going to happen. You never know when the fall is going to happen. So being there uh, uh, as much as humanly possible, I think is really essential. And I think it's something that really does pay off later, uh, hugely, right? So, I mean, uh, you know, my daughter can, you know, we were at the mall with some friends today and they have uh, daughters and she just went off with their daughters. Um, and uh, I didn't have any concerns about, you know, her getting along or her running off. I and mean, she was, she's a very easy child to get along with. She was pretty, pretty high maintenance at the beginning. I'll tell you that. I, I don't know if that's my kid or just in general, but hugely high maintenance to begin with. But now things are very, very easy. And she's a real pleasure. I mean, she's always been a pleasure, but it's, she's a real pleasure to be around. It's a very easy relationship because there's just so much water under the bridge. So I suggest if you want to have kids, you know, save up your money, go live with your parents if you have a good relationship, uh, you know, find some way, downgrade, sell your house, live in an apartment for the first couple of years uh, to have at least one, if ideally uh, both parents present. Um, it really does make a, an incredible world of difference. Uh, it makes parenting so much more fun. I mean, it is, of course, a huge commitment, but um, I really think that the peace of the world deserves nothing less. I have a, I have one more question. Uh, there's something semi-related to this, and I'm just interested in your thoughts. What do you think it is that motivates people to have children? <laughs> or is that too general a question? I mean, no, I, I think a, that a great question. Myself, it's a fantastic question. <laughs> personally, from you know, and uh, maybe this is this is kind of a cop out. I don't think so, but. I, you know, I look at kind of the world going forward over the next 10 and 15 years, and I don't have any, you know, like doom or gloom scenario in mind, but I'm just very uh, uneasy about, you know, bringing uh, a young person into what uh, possibly could develop. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but then maybe more generally, why do you think people uh, are, are they consciously choosing to do this or is it some biological cue for a lot of people that just like oh time to 
get married, have children. Well, let's hear from your fabulous co-host while I compose a thought or two. Why did you have children? Well, that's an interesting uh, question that we, since we have Stefan on. Uh, I was in his boat uh, back in the day. I'd never wanted to have uh, children. And even when uh, my wife and I got married, we didn't want to have children. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, really only after um, when Stefan started doing his podcast and listening to him uh, for a year or two that I uh, decided like that, that would be a good idea to uh, go about uh, embarking on that journey. How about that, Steph? Well, I appreciate that, and I can only assume that they're named Steph 1 and Steph 2. I also accept UPB <laughs> or FDR uh, as middle names. Um, but that sort of gives the mo- that gives the prompting. I don't think that gives the motivation. Does that make sense? Sure. Well, I know what was stopping me is I, I didn't feel like I knew how to do that. Like My, my childhood was not uh, good. Right. I didn't want Sorry to in that. that on anyone else. Right. So I, I felt like I never wanted to uh, have the children until I knew exactly how I was going to do it. Uh, look, I just wanted to mention, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know the details, but I'm obviously <laughs> sorry about, about the childhood that you have. And this, of course, is one of the frustrations of the planet as a whole, which is that the people who have enough forethought to know that they don't want to reproduce their own childhoods are hesitant to breed. But in a sense, they're the people who should be breeding because they have the greatest capacity to break the cycle. But anyway, I just want to mention. So, okay, so let's say I said, you know, well, you know, parenting is fun or, or you know, there's a lot to be got out of it or whatever. Um, was there anything in particular that was the primary motivation to deciding to take what is, you know, the biggest commitment you can take outside of marriage? You know, I, I don't even know how to verbalize that. All right. Well, uh, while you think about it, uh, let me start avoiding the personal question with a very, very brief discourse on the motivations that most people have. Most people, of course, don't, they don't know why they want to have kids. Like if you ask them, they say, uh, I don't know, we got married. That's just the thing you do next or getting pressure from my parents or the priest said, have some babies or whatever it is. And I think it's really important to understand that, um, childhood and, and the having of children is, has fundamentally historically been breed for the benefit of the rulers. I mean, so, I mean, if you look at religions, they, they tend to be against birth control. Why are they against birth control? Because it is easier to indoctrinate than it is to uh, to convert, right? So uh, why do Catholics want to have so many children? Why do Muslims want to have so many children? Because that's how you spread, right? So there's a lot of pressure and propaganda uh, from the ruling class to have lots of kids in the same way that if you have a very fast horse, you want to stud it or breed it. If it's a male horse, you want to breed it off, even if it's a female horse, because it's going to make you a lot of money, right? So the breeding of taxpayers, the breeding of religious adherents, the breeding of tithe payers, whatever it is, has been a huge uh, motivational factor uh, for, for people to have children. And this is why there is this general prejudice. It's like, well, you don't have kids. What's the matter with you? There's something wrong. You should be having children. Children are the best thing ever. You've got to have kids and so on, with no particular reference to empirical studies. The empirical studies show that, that children, by in large, uh, reduce the quality of people's life experience and marriage experience considerably. 
considerably. I mean, if, if people just did a little bit of basic research, you know, like I was to say to someone, oh, I went to go and buy a, 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 um, uh, an Android tablet. It's like, well, how long did you spend doing the research for that Android tablet? Oh, you know, I was off and on reading websites, a couple of hours, you know, a couple of days kind of thing. It's like, okay, so when you decided to have kids, how much research did you do into whether that was a good idea or not? Uh, and if it was a bad idea, under what circumstances was it a bad idea? How could it be better? And how should you discipline your kids? And if you even need discipline, and how, what are you going to do for uh, education? I mean, the average bride, I think I was reading this today, if I remember the numbers right, the average bride spends like 170 hours preparing him for her wedding. It's like, dear God, take 20% of that and read parental effectiveness training or figure out, you know, what mistakes people made that, that end up with them having such a negative experience of having children. I mean, one out of five women doesn't even want the child that's coming out of her hoo-hoo in the actual moment. I mean, it's, yeah, anyway, it's a complete mess. So, you know, I really encourage people to do the research, to recognize that for the majority of people, uh, having children uh, negatively impacts the marriage, negatively impacts intimacy, happiness, sleep, uh, health. I mean, it can generally, according to the studies that are done, it's pretty disastrous for people to, to have children. And of course, because they resent all of that, the children end up uh, not being very happy and not being treated well and so on. So I think that's an important thing to understand. There's a lot of propaganda around having children, even though having children for the ruling classes generally makes your life a whole lot less fun. And um, was it um, Phyllis Schlafly, the writer, has a big comment about this that's somewhat related where she says, um, you know, it, it, it's hard for women who have never, quote, paid into Social Security to get much back out of it. Although she says, well, I've been, you know, I've raised six children and therefore have contributed six taxpaying citizens to the general public roles. Therefore, I should be getting Social Security because I've produced so much that is of benefit to other people as new taxpayers and so on. And it is, you know, children are a revenue stream. I mean, one of the reasons that Europe is doing so badly is the birth rate is really low. And one of the reasons the birth rate is really low is that there's been such a huge growth in the size and power of the state. So there's a lot of propaganda. I don't think people really think about it at all. It's just the next thing you do. There is, of course, a phase in a woman's 30s where it's, I've sort of heard it described as either feeling like you constantly need to pee or you constantly need to eat uh, where they just get this baby hunger. And there's that sort of biological drive. Uh, but um, uh, I think that people don't really think about it. The research shows that not really thinking about it is a bad idea because you end up less happy than before. And it's not like you can just back out of it kind of easily. So uh, I think it's really important to do that. I mean, I, I had a kid just because um, I think life is an incredibly beautiful thing. I am completely overjoyed to be alive. Uh, and um, if there's this wonderful and beautiful gift, this thing called life that you can just kind of snap your fingers and, and create and, and then spend time nurturing and so on, uh, it is a truly a delightful experience to see a mind rise like uh, a skull and bones Atlantis and become sort of full-fleshed, talking, animated, cutesy head with teeth. Uh, it is an absolutely, I hate to say it, almost a religious experience to see out of a sperm and an egg and an ultrasound to have a human being come. So Michelle Pfeiffer says this in some movie with Nick Cage. It's like, there were no people. And now there are people. I mean, fundamentally, that's an incredible thing, a mind-blowing thing. There are no people. And then there are people. And uh, that's just incredible. I mean, it is like being a little deity, you know, <laughs> to make people. I mean, it's incredible. Like, I can't even put my wife's uh, treadmill together. But, but you know, with, uh, you know, three minutes of bad sex, I can make a baby. I mean, it's incredible. So I think that unbelievably magical 
mystical, quasi-astounding, jaw-dropping, there's a person there that there wasn't before. Uh, it's just such an astoundingly amazing thing to be part of and to have a, a hand in guiding uh, that, um, I mean, geez, I mean, if you do the research and you do it right, I think there's nothing better in the world. But unfortunately, most people never do the research, do it pretty wrong. Uh, you know, 80 to 90 percent of parents are still hitting their children. And then they wonder why their lives take a bad turn after they have kids. Well, it's because you're doing wrong. That's why, you know, if you go out and go become a shoplifter, you're not that surprised if you lose some self-esteem points, are you? But if you go around hitting your children, yelling at children, abandoning your children for other people to raise, guess what? You do bad things, you tend to end up unhappy. That's the reason equals virtue equals happiness, uh, trifecta of uh, philosophy, and the opposite is, is, is true as well. So if children, if, if people do the research, do the preparation, and know what they're doing, why they're doing, commit to the non-aggression principle, raise their children uh, peacefully, give extra special uh, rights and, and privileges and uh, um, superhumanity with the cherry on top to their kids. Uh, it's an incredible experience, but that's really quite the opposite of what most people do. And that is, I think, the central tragedy of our species at the moment. Really well put. Except for the part where you said skull and bones rising out of Atlantis, our conspiracy theory listeners are going to have a field day with that. But uh, other than that, perfect. <laughs> but don't worry, that particular skull and bones did not get any vaccinations and was never exposed to fluoride. So there you go, people. And, and oh, now that they're, they're yeah. definitely going to have a field day with that. All right. Well, hey, I, I want to thank you so much for for your time. You want to take a quick minute to uh, to plug your stuff. Plug my stuff, man. Okay, so follow me down into the back alley, people. Uh, listen, I'm going to open up my trench coat. I got uh, I got some philosophy here, man. You can snort this stuff. It's it's good stuff, man. Uh, it, you know, it's all high hangover, man. You'll be flying high as a kite on fire through the face of the moon, backwards around the sun, looping around. It's going to be like being a, a condor's ass feather uh, in a high breeze. That's where you want to be. It's going to be like being a a, a seagull in a, in a tornado going round and round but never hitting the ground. This is the good stuff, man. Mainline it. Take it. Freedomainradio.com. We've had almost 50 million downloads. Just one. Dare I say, ahead of the inimitable Ron Paul, Tom Woods, and Antonio Beeler, the 2012 Liberty Inspiration Award. You can check that out. Uh, I've got the link to on the main page of my website. Read some of the testimonials. I mean, if you doubt the power of philosophy, uh, read some of the testimonials. I think that you'll um, at least be intrigued and hopefully will dip your toe into the Elysium streams of uh, reason and evidence. So. Yeah, biggest philosophy show the world has ever seen. Uh, massive, massive thanks to the listeners. It's entirely donation-based. The books are all free. Uh, the podcasts are all free. Websites uh, is, is all free. Uh, if you like it, you know, uh, kick a few shekels upstream to the starving salmon ahead. Uh, that would be great. Uh, and uh, hopefully in the next month or two or three, the documentary will be out. It's called Truth. You can go to truththedocumentary.com soon, I think it is, to to check out uh, some of the, um, the previews and promos. Um, it's uh, just I've got a conference call tonight with the musical production team which is uh fantastic uh so yeah but that's what's going on and of course uh, for my listeners uh if you guys uh definitely you brett uh, want to plug what you're doing i'm always been a huge fan of of your show brett so make sure that my listeners can hear your tasty goodies too sure and uh i'm at schoolsuckproject.com we just launched a brand new website so uh i encourage people to go over and make a user account uh, and get participating in the, they can start a group, they can join a group, participate in our forums. Uh, anything you do on that website puts you right on the front page of it. So if you have something that you want to share, uh, you want to get some eyes on, please go to schoolsucks.com, make 
account and get involved. And we also have this thing called the AV Club, which is a bonus content. Uh, we have over probably approaching 150 hours of unreleased material. Uh, that is a, quite a wide range of uh, content. So um, I recommend that it, you know it, we're also donating. So if people send us six dollars a month, nine dollars a month, they get access to all of that. And uh, uh, just on Ustream on Saturdays. And a quick tip as well: if you're searching for Brent's show, do not put a space between school and sucks, and definitely do not click on the images. Um, it will age you. Uh, significantly. So I just wanted to mention that school sucks, just one word. Look for that. Don't put the space in it. Do not click on the images. Do not click on the images. <laughs> Funny story. When I was, uh, I was Googling myself looking for videos to put on a website when I was still building it. Like uh, maybe there's videos out there of me that I don't know about that should be on the site. I came across a playlist that had uh, a picture of you as one of the screen caps, a picture of me as one of the screen caps. And the title of the was on YouTube was something like, Learn about how you are a sheep in the Jesuit control <laughs> education system. And I said, wow, thanks for, you know, sorry, Jesuits. So, on behalf of Steph, sorry, Jesuits. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting uh, you wind up involved in on the internet. So, anyway, thanks again. We'll have to do some time in the future. And uh, hopefully, I can uh, plan to see you in New York in April at what is that event? April the twentieth, yeah. And I will also be at the Escape Hatch Conference in Belize uh, in early to mid March uh, on my website under speeches. Uh, people can see my public speeches before. I can't remember how many I did last year, but it was a huge number. And um, I will be in Belize, uh, and then I don't know. Are you going to Porkfest, uh, Libertopia, that kind of good stuff next year? Oh, this year, I guess now. Definitely Porkfest. Yep, I will be there. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, uh, and uh, thanks to to everyone on your side. It was a, a real pleasure, and uh, have a great night. All right. Thanks, Steph. Take care. Bye.